We have likened our trip through Hebrews chapter 11 together as a church to something like going through a portrait gallery. We walked in at the very beginning of this chapter and we saw the first portrait up on the wall, the portrait of a man named Abel. And we continued on looking from portrait to portrait to portrait to portrait. And I'm just picturing in my mind's eye here this museum where we enter in and there's a picture on the wall and there's a short description of of what this person's great exploit for God was and, and perhaps some other brochure that we pull out as we flip back to the Old Testament and learn about this person's life. And, and the author of Hebrews, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is like our tour guide. And he brings us through and see, look at this portrait. Look at, look at Abel there. Look at Enoch there. Look at Noah there. Look at Abraham and Sarah there. And then there's Jacob over here and Isaac. And then over here, he keeps on going through this tour station as we stop at each one of these portraits. But in my mind's eye today, as we come to verse 32, the tour guide is looking at his watch. He's saying, we've just gotten to Joshua. And I've already spent about 31 verses. I've already spent all this time just getting through the first sliver of our Old Testament. And so he points ahead. And he says, there's a bunch more rooms to show you. You see, there's an entire wing over here. That entire wing, he says, are those who through faith subdued kingdoms. And over here, there's another wing for all those who wrought righteousness. And then down that hall, there are those who who obtained promises. And then a little farther, those who stopped the mouths of lions. And then those who quenched the violence of fire. And then those who escaped the edge of the sword. And those who were out of weakness were made strong. And he just tells us there's more portraits. But he says, I just don't have time. And what shall I more say, he says in verse 32, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets. Now, there's one thing I've learned both as a speaker and as someone who has heard people speak Beware when someone tells you as a speaker, I'm almost done. Very dangerous words. Because rarely, truly are they almost done. They just don't want you to fall asleep yet. That's really what they're doing. They're they're preparing you for that. Next time I say I'm almost done, I'm going to get a bunch of glares back at me and I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to that. But I want us to think about how we should view these portrait galleries that we're not even getting an entire glimpse into. We've had all these ones that we've seen and we've gone through week after week after week. And then the author of Hebrews just says, there's a ton more where this came from and I just can't take you through all of them. I don't have the space on this papyrus. I don't have the time in this book. Well, we're going to spend, God willing, two weeks going through these last nine or so verses of Hebrews chapter 11. And you'll see that that there are, at the beginning here in verse 32, a list of six names 
that he doesn't even have more time than just to simply point. There's Gideon. There's Barak. There's Samson. There's Jephthah. There's David. There's Samuel. That's all the time I have for. And then a whole variety of different rooms that he tells us of, those who had extreme exploits and victories and triumphs, and then somewhat soberingly at the end of this chapter, those who had unconscionable sufferings. The question is, what can we learn about our faith? Because this portrait gallery we've been learning is about us It's about us every bit as it was about those Hebrews that the author of Hebrews was writing to Christians who were struggling, who were maybe considering even turning away from their faith and going back to Judaism. The encouragement is every bit to us as it is to them to take a look at this portrait gallery and be strengthened and equipped to walk by faith every day, every moment of our lives. This morning we're just going to start with those first six names, those portraits that only the author of Hebrews is going to point at. And we'll take a little bit more time than the author of Hebrews did this morning to look at a message I'm going to entitle, By Faith, Everyday People, and Extraordinary Exploits. By Faith, Everyday People, and extraordinary exploits. And we're going to look at this passage just in a few different areas as we group these names together. The first is we're going to look at these extraordinary exploits that these six names represent. Secondly, we're going to look at the ordinary people that made up these exploits, that performed these things that will, I trust, blow our minds fresh again this morning. And then thirdly, we're going to look at a timely faith. A timely faith that we see here in verse 33, who through faith performed these exploits. First of all, some extraordinary exploits. Now again, if we look at these names, and I hope you have your Bibles open to Hebrews 11 today, so we can look at this together. In verse 32, he mentions Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. Now, I suspect that for most of us, those names trigger some kind of recollection, some kind of memory, some kind of scriptural basis to say, I know that guy did some great things for God. Now, others of these names, you may not remember anything. You may not remember even where to find them in the Bible. Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to go back and take a very quick look at these men and what we can glean from them. Now, I want us to notice something here in verse 32. He mentions Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Now, does anyone know what book of the Bible we would find the exploits of those men written in, those four men? The book of Judges. All four of those men are in the book of Judges. Do you know what's interesting? Do you know none of these are in chronological order from the book of Judges? Did you know Gideon came came after Barak in time, yet he's listed first? And did you know that Samson came after Jephthah in time, but is written first? In other words, this is not just a chronological order that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to give us. There's something else going on 
there are portraits that seem to be coming to us out of chronological order and yet all within the book of Judges. So let's just start here with them and just take them in their name, in the order that they're given, and let's start with Gideon. What do you think of when you think of Gideon? What do you think of? 300 men defeating an army of how many? Do you know how many were the army of the Midianites that Gideon took on. You can read about Gideon between Judges 6 through 8. If you just want to make a note and take a deeper study of that later today or at another time, Judges 6 through 8. Do you know how big an army Gideon defeated? 135,000. 135,000. And he had 300. But in, in fact, that's not all the story. The story was, of course, you remember, and going back to Judges 6, you remember um, God appearing to Gideon and scaring him out of his mind. The angel of God appears to Gideon and says, you're a mighty man of valor. And he says, looks around, who, me? Because at that moment, he was threshing grain hiding from the Midianites. You say, how do you know that? Because he was threshing grain in a wine press. You don't thresh grain in a wine press. You thresh grain where the wind is going to blow away the chaff and leave the, 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 the kernels that you actually want. He was doing it in secret because he was scared that the Midianites would see him and come steal his stuff. This was not a guy who appears to us to be a mighty man of valor. But then not only that, when God gets a hold of him and he decides he's going to fight, the story is that Gideon has 32,000 men. Now, 32,000 men is a big mismatch against 135,000, but it's sure better than 300. And do you know what God says to him? The Lord says to Gideon, Judges 7 and verse 2, the people that are with thee are too many. 32,000 against 135,000. Too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God says, I know what's going to happen if 32,000 people win. You're all going to puff out your chests and say, well, aren't we a military power? God says, uh-uh. That's not what's going on here. And so God winnies his army down, winnows his army down to 300 men. And Gideon is crazy enough to go to war. And you remember the story. He circles them in the middle of the night. They blow trumpets. They break these, the, 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 what is covering their lights. And suddenly this huge host is, sees lights and hears noises. And there's chaos. And they start killing each other. And their animals are running wild. And Gideon and his 300 men hardly have to do anything. Of course, they pursue after them and other people come alongside and now their army swells. And, but really, it was a victory that God won. 300 men against 135,000. What about Barak? Maybe Barak is one of those names we don't think about as much. You can read about him in Judges chapter 4. Barak was a military leader, but he was not the political or spiritual leader. Does anyone remember who the spiritual leader of that day was in Judges chapter 4? The judge of Israel. Does anyone remember? Deborah. Deborah. Deborah was the spiritual leader who gave the command of God to move forward. And Barak goes out to war against Sisera with 10,000 men. 
uh, uh, Sis, uh, excuse me, Barak has 10,000 men. Sisera, it scripture says, has an army. It doesn't tell us how big it is, but he had 900 chariots of iron. You say, well, what does that matter? The chariots of iron were the tanks of ancient warfare. Now, you can imagine if you were a foot soldier and you were on level ground and here came a stampede of horses and 900 chariots, you know, with those iron spokes out of their wheel that just rolled people down and trampled them over. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? Here's one thing that we probably have never considered about Barak. Scripture makes clear for us that when, when, when Barak went down to war against Sisera and his 900 chariots, Barak was in the mountain, Mount Tabor, and he went down to the valley to fight. Do you see how crazy that is? Chariots can't work up in the mountains because they can't cross that terrain. You know where chariots work really, really well? In a valley, in a field. And Barak said, I'm up here on the mountain. I'm going down to fight him on his turf, on his battlefield. And you remember the story of God bringing a great victory, Sisera's host being defeated, and ultimately Sisera being destroyed himself by a woman with a very strong forearm. What about Samson? You remember Samson? You can read about him in Judges 13 through 16. The strongest man who ever lived, moved by the Holy Spirit to do these great feats of strength and agility. My personal favorite is when he went out, he was angry about how the Philistines had treated his former wife and, so, and, and her father. So he went out and caught 300 foxes. Now, I like to catch foxes. It's one of my favorite things, particularly by hand. Um, you know, I'm not quite to Samson's level of agility. What took him beyond me was when he caught 300 and then tied them tail to tail and set fire to the firebrand between their tails so they'd run and burn down the enemy's crops. That was the real part for me that blew my mind. No, it's, it's wild, right? Or then when immediately after this, when a thousand men come after them and the spirit of the Lord moves them and he takes the jawbone of a donkey and kills a thousand people with it. That's pretty remarkable. These are remarkable feats of strength. Or even at the end of his life, when he is being mocked and scorned by all the Philistines, the rulers of the Philistines, and there's 3,000 of them there at this one great celebration, this one great party. He is blind. His hair now slowly has been regrowing. And he asks God, just one more time, give me strength. And he literally brings down the entire stone temple. And scripture says the people he killed in his death were more than the people he killed in his life. His final act was his greatest act. You say, what about Jephthah? Jephthah was a pretty remarkable man. We'll talk a little bit more about, you can read about him in Judges chapter 11. The children of Israel are being oppressed by the children of Ammon. Jephthah, a man who was on the outside of society, a man who was an outcast, leads his people into battle, destroys the army of Ammon, takes, smites 20 cities, destroys 20 cities as a great military victory. What about David? You can read about him in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, 1st Chronicles. What exploits did David perform? Well, we think of David and Goliath, right? Charging ahead toward this giant as just a shepherd boy. We think of him killing a, a bear. We think of him killing a lion. We think of his great military exploits. We think of all the things that this man after God's own heart did. What about Samuel? 
from a little boy hearing God's voice and saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, and then going to be God's mouthpiece for decades upon decades, faithfully proclaiming the word of the Lord. Now, we tend, I think, to look at these extraordinary exploits and just throw up our hands a little bit and say, well, that's pretty remarkable, but I don't know what that has to do with me. I am never called to do these kind of things. These are just kind of things that we just attribute to ancient Old Testament history and say, God, you've done some amazing things through some amazing people. And you'd be looking at it exactly the wrong way. Because the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11 is not to say, see these people up in the portrait gallery? Aren't they amazing? Aren't these extraordinary people? You couldn't even dream of being like them. The point of Hebrews 11 is to look up at these people in the, in the portrait gallery and say, these people are you. These people are me. These people are made from the exact same stuff that we are. Do you remember in the book of James when he is talking about the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man? of how powerful your and my prayer can be. Do you remember what example he gives in the, in the Old Testament? Who remembers? Which, which name does he give? Elijah. And do you remember what he says about Elijah? He introduces him like this. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prophesied and said there wouldn't be rain and there was no rain. And then he prayed and it rained. What is he saying? When he says Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, he's saying his DNA is no different than your DNA. What he's saying is he felt things just like you feel things. In fact, we read, I think it's in 1 Kings chapter 19, that Elijah went through a bout of what any person here today, what any doctor here today would call clinical depression. Utterly spent, utterly exhausted, utterly ready for his life to be done and over. And God came mercifully and graciously and brought him back to his feet after he got plenty of rest. All of these people that we're reading about in Hebrews chapter 11 are made of the same stuff that we are. Not only did they perform extraordinary exploits, they are secondly ordinary people. And I want to prove it to you, even from these names. I want to start chronologically with Barak. Go back to Judges chapter 4, will you? Keep a finger, if you don't mind, in Hebrews chapter 11. But let's just look very briefly at Judges chapter 4. Who is Barak? We don't know much about him. We know that Deborah was the prophetess at the time. Verse 4 says, In Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali, and of the children of Zebulun, and I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. God said through Deborah, Barak, I've got a plan for you and it's going to work. You're going to prevail. And what, is, what does Barak say? 
And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. Now, this has led Barak to have a little bit of a bad name as something of a coward. And there is fear there. There is fear that says, if you don't come with me, I'm not going. But there's also a kind of faith. There's also a faith that says, you're telling me from the mouth of God that I'm going to win, then prove it. You come with me. But notice what scripture says of him in verse 9. Deborah says to him, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Your lack of faith, your fear in this moment will mean that this glory, this honor will not ultimately be yours. You will not have the decisive blow over Sisera. Now, you know, I look at Barak and I kind of identify with that, don't you? You're telling me what? 900 chariots of iron? A powerful host? How am I going to know? Doesn't that look what our hesitance looks like sometimes at the command of God? What our fear looks like? What about Gideon? Go ahead, two chapters to Judges chapter 6. God appears to him, we read of in verse 12, the angel of the Lord appears to him and says to him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? God giving him direct revelation of his calling. And listen to, to Gideon's response. And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. God, not me. I couldn't do that. Don't you see my family background? In fact, even after Gideon rallies the troops, we see here in the end of, of chapter 6, this, this test he puts God to. He puts a fleece out on the ground, and he said, God, will you give, just give me one more sign? He says, God, if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry when I wake up in the morning, in other words, the dew has only gotten to the fleece, all right, I'll follow you, and God does it. And he says, God, God, never mind, one more thing, God. I might be able to explain that atmospherically. I might have a scientific explanation. So, for, so God, just flip it around now. Leave the fleece dry and let the ground be wet. And God says, okay. And he does it. Doesn't that sound kind of like you and I? God, you've told me to do something, but can you just make it a little more clear? That's so much like us. It's so much like our lives, our experience, that our actions of faith are so often mixed with fear, with doubt, with trembling, with a kind of hesitancy that God said, that says, God, can you really prove it to me? Great faith, but mixed with fear as ordinary people. Not only that in Gideon's life, we don't, even see, we don't only see fear, we see this kind of family issue, this kind of family chaos in his life. One thing perhaps we've forgotten, if you were to read Judges 8 and 9 about Gideon, you would see that this man had 70 sons. 
70 sons. He had so many wives. And one of his sons was from a concubine, a mistress. Outside of God's plan. Outside of God's plan, which from the beginning has been one man and one woman for life. And this turned out to absolute chaos after Gideon died. That son that was from a mistress um, killed every single one of his other sons but one. Showing no family gratitude, showing no family love. You see this man who is recorded in the hall of faith as a hero on that portrait gallery and you see his family coming after him, utterly destroyed. We don't just see that in Gideon. What about in Jephthah? What about in the story of Jephthah that we read about Judges chapter 11? If you were to look there, you would see that Jephthah, when he, uh, when he became to be a leader, Scripture makes sure to tell us that he was the son of Gilead, but he was the son of Gilead from a prostitute. His family utterly rejected him and said, we don't want any part of you. And it was only when they were in their greatest crisis did they call him back in and said, okay, maybe, maybe we're going to have to rely on you as a great military leader. Not only that, Judges 11 uh, reveals to us the very foolish vow that Jephthah made. When he, when he was about, when, before he won this victory, he said, God, if you give me this victory, I'll sacrifice the first thing as a burnt offering that comes out of my house. And we recall Judges chapter 11, the first one that came out of his house to greet him was his daughter, his only daughter. Now, people have wrestled with and tried to understand whether he truly did have for her as a human sacrifice, something that would have been appalling to God. Scripture is a little bit ambiguous about it, perhaps. But in any event, you see this man whose family life was full of chaos or tragedy or disrepair. You think of even Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We read of Samuel that he appointed his own children as judges after him. But 1 Samuel 8 records, and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after money and took bribes and perverted judgment, so much so that the people of Israel said, your children are not going to be the judges after you. They're wicked men. One of the great heroes of faith had children that utterly abandoned the worship of Jehovah. You say, what's going on here? What about David? David, a man after God's own heart, who we see uh, marked in his life by adultery with Bathsheba, with the murder of one of his faithful soldiers, of indeed a life where his children turned against one another, even murdered one another, and had a violence that never departed out of his house as God had promised. He's up there in that portrait gallery. You say, what about Samson? Samson was a man who you can't read Judges 13 through 16 without coming across a fleshly action that he took. This was a man given over to sexual lust, going, getting into trouble because he's going to visit that prostitute there or because he's going over to visit Delilah over here or he's losing his temper and doing this over here. You see a man given over to his own lust. What am I saying? Am I suggesting that these acts of faith somehow excuse their fleshliness, their fears, their family chaos and disgraces? No! What I'm saying is this. They dealt with fear just like you and I do. 
They dealt with family chaos and disgrace just like you and I do. They dealt with fleshliness just like you and I do. They were made of the same kind of stuff. And what I don't mean is for you to leave here this morning and say, you know, I've got a lot of these areas in my life, but Pastor Peter said it's okay as long as I'm a person of faith. No. This is not to excuse your and my failures, your and my fleshliness, your and my fear. But it is this. It is to say that your human weaknesses should not excuse your and my unbelief. Do you hear that? The fact that you are fearful should not excuse your unbelief. The fact that you may be fleshly in certain areas of your life that you are, you are grieved by, you are wounded by, should not excuse you acting in unbelief. The fact that you have family distresses and discouragements, your children haven't turned out, your marriage isn't where you want it to be, your family background is, has caused you to be excluded from others. You say, well, I can't be used from God. I can't be used for exploits of faith. And God says, no, no. Look at these people up here in the portrait gallery. They were fleshly people too. They were fearful people at times too. They had their own family chaos and disgrace. And yet ultimately what I look at them is that by faith they wrought exploits for me. You see, friends, Ordinary people can do extraordinary things in the providence of God and by, thirdly, by timely faith. You see, what is the common trait across all of these six men? It's the same thing that is the common trait across everyone else we've seen in Hebrews chapter 11. It's that at a particular decisive moment in their life, God gave them a command. He gave them a calling. He gave them a direction. And they trusted the faithfulness of God enough to say, I will obey. Even when it didn't make sense. You see, what we've been learning from Hebrews chapter 11 is that faith, biblically, is not something, a thought in your head. It's not just a kind of intellectual assent to certain truths. It is the reality, it is the conviction of your soul that causes you to act, that causes you to obey in reliance on the faithfulness of the one who called you to do it. And that means that these men, and indeed women as we've seen in Hebrews 11, are not those who just on a particular whim said, I think I'm going to go try this. I think I'm going to go take on this exploit over here. No, it was people who were given a direction from God and by faith they did it even when it didn't make sense. And for this, ultimately, we turn to the providential hand of God who reached down and tapped each of these people on the shoulder at a decisive moment in time and said, obey me. I think of Esther. You remember Esther when she is confronted with this choice to expose that she is a Jew, to expose her own life to being taken. And Mordecai says to her, who knows whether you were called to the kingdom, you were called to be queen for such a time as this. And in faith, she says, if I perish, I perish. 
But friends, sometimes we forget about how Esther was called to the kingdom, don't we? Do you remember how Esther was called to that place? How God's sovereign purpose for her brought her there? Sometimes we think it was a beauty contest that simply Esther won, and it really wasn't. If you remember in the book of Esther, the, this after Queen Vashti had been dispo, uh, deposed, the king sent and gathered together all the beautiful women that they could find. They prepared for months. They were given everything they need. And then scripture says they went into the king one night and they came out the next morning. And they went to the house of the concubines, to the mistresses, to the, the secondary wives, that may never see the king again in their life, but could never marry anyone else. That was what Esther went through. And in that place of a wicked king satisfying his debauched lusts, satisfying his own cruel desires, and being, and, and being forced into the prospect of being a concubine, never to marry, never to have a happy family life again, through that wickedness in the sovereign purpose of God, Esther was elevated to the place where by faith she could fulfill God's purposes in the world in a decisive moment in time. Friends, my point is simply this. You and I never know when our decisive moment, when an act of faith is required. You simply and I simply do not know when we are called to our position in life for such a time as this. And friends, it's at that moment in time that you and I will be called to obey God no matter the circumstances, no matter what our human eyes see. Are we willing to obey God? And that will be where that decisive, timely faith will be revealed. If we look back even at the history of our Christian church, we see those who out of obscurity changed the entire world by one timely and decisive act of faith. I think of a man named D.L. Moody D.L. Moody was one of the great evangelists that the Christian church has ever known. Some have credited him with bringing up to a million or more people to faith in Jesus Christ by his preaching across the United States and in Great Britain. A man who has cast an unbelievably legendary shadow across the Christian church even to this day. Do you know how D.L. Moody came to Jesus Christ? D.L. Moody was about a 15 or 16-year-old boy. He was working as a, as a shoe clerk, a simple, humble apprentice in someone's shop. And he was going to Sunday school in a church where there was a man named Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball is a man, at least I know virtually nothing about, 
He was a Sunday school teacher, like we have Sunday school teachers here at Straight Gate Church. And as I understand, D.L. Moody had only been coming for a short period of time, but God put a real burden on, DL, on, on Edward Kimball's heart. You need to give the gospel to this young man. And he developed a deep burden for him. One day he decided, I'm going to go visit him at his store. And Edward Kimball related that he wasn't sure whether he should. He didn't want to embarrass D.L. Moody by giving him the gospel around all his co-workers, and then they'd begin mocking him him and belittling him, but he felt such a strong uh, uh, calling of God that he went. Here's what Edward Kimball recalled. I determined to speak to him about Christ and about his soul and started down to Holton's shoe store, the place of Moody's employment. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go in during business hours, but I pushed on finding Moody in the back part of the building wrapping up shoes. I went up to him at once and putting my hand on his shoulder, I made what I afterwards felt was a very weak plea for Christ. That's how he remembered it, a very weak plea for Christ. I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love Christ wanted in return. That was all there was. It seemed that the young man was just ready for the light that then broke upon him. And there in the back of that store in Boston, he gave himself and his life to Christ. Years later, D.L. Moody said, I don't remember what he said, but I can feel the power of that man's hand on my shoulder tonight. One decisive act of faith when a humble Sunday school teacher, like the Sunday school teachers in this room that were here this morning, made one decisive act of faith that changed the course of human history and of the kingdom of God. Charles Spurgeon, called the Prince of Preachers, maybe the greatest preacher that we have seen in the Christian church, perhaps across history, a man who would regularly preach to thousands of people boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ each Sunday, whose legacy still is living on and affecting people for Christ. Do you want to know how he was saved? Because one day he was walking to church in a snowstorm. And he was intending to go to the church that he ordinarily went to, but the snow was so bad that he walked down a side street and found a primitive Methodist chapel where 12 to 15 people were gathered, he said. The pastor didn't even show up. The preacher didn't even show up. He'd been snowed in. And so in his place, a very humble man, he thought he was a shoemaker or a tailor, just a very humble homespun man, got up and opened his Bible and turned to Isaiah 45, the, ver the passage that says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And this humble man, apparently with no preparation, just began to say in the most simple declarations about looking to Jesus and being saved. And Spurgeon says he, he didn't really go beyond his text because he didn't really have anything else to say. I mean, it would just be like one of you getting up and saying, I'm going to preach because pastor didn't show up this morning. And he gets up and then Spurgeon recalled this. He said he looked at Spurgeon directly as a new person, 15 or 16 years old. He looked at him and he said, young man, you look very miserable. Imagine one of you getting up to preach and finding a visitor and saying, young man, you look very miserable. He said, well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. That was what Spurgeon says. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Spurgeon said, then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. What would you do 
What would you have done? Would you have done what that tailor or shoemaker did in that moment? Well, we can tell. It's whether in these decisive moments of time in our life, we are ready, we are prepared to act and obey by faith, not knowing whether that one simple action will be the one thing that will be remembered for eternity as an act of faith that brought about God's purposes in this world. Do you know Jesus wants you to think like that? Jesus wants you to think like that because I read in Matthew chapter 10, he said that if you give a cup of cold water, one cup of cold water to any Christian, Mark 9 says, because he is with me, because he is of Christ, you will not lose your reward. Jesus wants you to realize that the simplest act of faith that you have, giving a cup of cold water to a Christian who's thirsty, you will be rewarded for eternity. Because in part, you never know how God's providential purposes are working through ordinary people to do extraordinary things for his kingdom. You see, friends, today the message that we need to take from these six men is that if you look at your history and you say, my family background, you, God uses those people who grew up in Christian homes, not people who grew up like me. Look at Jephthah and say, that's not true. Don't excuse my unbelief that way. You say, you don't understand what I've done in the past. You don't understand the mistakes that I've made. You don't understand how fleshly I've been in my life. Look at Samson and say, yeah, he's up there on that portrait gallery. You look at your life and you say, my marriage is miserable. You say, my children have walked away from the Lord. What testimony do I have? I've, been, I've failed as a parent. I've failed in all these ways in my family relationships. And then you look up at David and you look up at Samuel, and you say, they're on the portrait gallery. What excuse do I have? Friends, you and I have no excuse. Because what Hebrews 11 wants to show us is that portrait gallery is still being filled out today. Portraits are still being drawn of you and of me and of those ordinary people who in a decisive moment of time, even in the smallest areas of life, a providential sovereign God is working extraordinary things for his purpose. Friends, the time will fail. The time would fail to tell all those who are in the portrait gallery of faith because you and I can indeed be there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these great heroes of faith who really weren't heroes at all. They were just ordinary men and women who had the gall, who had the courage to trust you and obey. Father, today might be the day in which a timely faith is needed for us. Perhaps the moment we walk out of here this afternoon, you'll bring about an opportunity to trust you and obey. None of us know the hour, the minute, when we are called to our position for such a time as this. So, Father, may we always be ready. May we always be prepared. Let's pause for a moment with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Have you been using your failings 
Have you been using your fears? Have you been using your family struggles to excuse your unbelief, to excuse your failure, to trust God to do great things for, through you? Are you willing to yield yourself to God today and say, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to trust you and obey even in the smallest things. Parents, perhaps your great exploit in life is to raise a child who will be used greatly of God. That should sanctify every one of our mundane moments, of our aggravating and irritating moments as a parent by faith. Perhaps in your job, perhaps in your school, perhaps in your neighborhood, there will be one decisive act of faith that will be remembered throughout eternity. May you be ready.